The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, <clears throat> good morning everyone. Uh, uh, nice to see you again. And now it's only the, uh, the numbers have gone down a little bit, so now it's the real hardcore <laughs> people left. That's good. So uh, we have, um, as I mentioned yesterday, we have been looking at the uh, idea of right view, which is the foundation for the whole uh, uh, spiritual path, uh, and uh, looking at that in quite a bit of detail. Uh, and now we're coming into more the, if you like, the practical aspects, the consequences of having right view. If you have right view, there are consequences. Uh, if you have wrong view, there are consequences. Uh, and the consequences is what we will be looking at now. So we're going to continue with looking at the Buddha-to-be's uh, practices, uh, what made the Buddha-to-be the Buddha. And, uh, so, but now we're going to look at the, kind of the later factors of the path. Uh, uh, the consequence, of course, of right view is, first of all, that the Buddha renounces the household life. We've seen this already. That is kind of the right intention uh, of the Buddha. And uh, then comes all the factors of morality. Uh, I think we can assume that the Buddha-to-be was a very moral person uh, already uh, in his lay life. And uh, that, so that is not mentioned all that much in the sutta as about developing morality. Uh, but it kind of is implied in right effort and these sort of things. Uh, right effort is about the morality of the mind. And of course, the morality of the mind brings with it uh, the morality of body and speech uh, and all of these things. Uh, so now we're going to look at a sutta known as the Bhaya Bhairava Sutta. Uh, Bhaya, fear, Bhairava, similar kind of thing. The fear fear and fear, fear and dread sutta uh, found in Majjhima Nikaya 4, the fourth sutta of the Majjhima Nikaya. And um, so we'll see what happens, uh, uh, happens here. <coughs> So, this is the Buddha speaking, and as always, this is about before his awakening here. So, I have heard. At one time, the Buddha was staying near Savati in Jeta's Grove, another Pindika's monastery here. Then the Brahmin Janusoni went up to the Buddha and exchanged greetings with him. When the greetings and polite conversation were over, he sat down to one side and said to the Buddha, so uh, here we have kind of standard opening uh, on the suttas. Uh, we have the Brahmin Danusoni, who we have met with before briefly. Uh, here we have him again. Uh, he had quite a lot of conversations with the Buddha. And uh, this one here is a particularly profound conversation, taking, looking at the path all the way to awakening. So sometimes the Buddha would give very profound discourses also to the lay people. It wasn't always to the monastics. Uh, a lot of the time the discourses to the lay people are quite, you know, fairly on the kind of uh, not very profound things about being moral, about being generous, these kind of things. Uh, but also you have suttas where actually the Buddha goes into quite a bit of detail about the path. Uh, and so what that means, of course, is that um, depending on your commitment uh, as a Buddhist, a commitment to the path, uh, it is appropriate to give deep teachings also to lay people. It's not just for monastics. 
the idea of the teacher's fist. Yeah, you find that in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, that the Buddha doesn't have a teacher's fist. In other words, he doesn't withhold any teachings. The teachings are open to everyone. And there's something very beautiful about that. No kind of secret doctrine, no uh, kind of inner core of disciple who get the real teachings and all the kind of, you know, because this is the way you create a cult. So if you have an inner core of disciples, uh, the fact that everything is open means that there's some kind of integrity to those teachings. Uh, everything is available to everyone. Uh, that does not mean that you should teach everything to everyone. Uh, because if you do, you might turn people off. Uh, yeah, If you say, yeah, the purpose of Buddhism is to disappear. <laughs> people might say okay thank you very much I'll find another religion <laughs> so you have to know the right time and place for these teachings that's also important but in principle they're open to all so um, uh, then as always you have the polite conversation first of all this is a standard thing in the suttas and in the vinya this is expanded upon it tells more about how that polite conversation happens yeah how are you? Uh, have you come from far away, etc., etc.? Uh, and um, then uh, he says to the Buddha, Master Gautama, those gentlemen who have gone forth from lay life to homelessness out of faith uh, in Master Gautama, they have Master Gautama <coughs> to lead the way, <coughs> to help them out and to give them encouragement. Uh, and those people follow Master Gautama's example. Uh, that is so true, Brahmin. Everything you say is true, Brahmin. <laughs> kind of slightly curious translation, but anyway, that's, uh, that's the way he has put it. The reason he has put it that way is because the Pali repeats everything. That's why he uses the idea of everything you say is true. Um, so, um, yeah, you go forth out of faith in the Buddha. This is kind of the purpose of this is how you go forth in the right way and uh, one of them it's not just about going forth for any whatever reason because you have confidence in the buddha this word faith is so important in buddhism sadha is the pali word uh, and uh, it's a beautiful word and it actually means something different uh, in buddhism the idea of faith in buddhism is very different from faith in almost all other religions uh, in buddhism the idea of faith really is based on confidence uh, is based on a sense that this is true, this is reality. It's not a kind of make-believe or fairy-tale story. Uh, it is based on reality. So confidence uh, is often a very good translation for the word sadha, because you know that this is true. You have a feeling that it is true. You have, it is confirmed through your own practices and your own experience that these teachings are right. Uh, it's not just a matter of blindly following the Buddha. And the greater that confidence is, the more you understand those teachings, the greater is the sadha. And of course, understanding the teachings is wisdom. So wisdom and faith, sadha and panya, are two sides of the same coin in the Buddhist teachings. There are so many things that make the Buddhist teachings so special and unique in the world. And this is one of those qualities fact that the Buddha is a human being, this is one of the things that I have been kind of emphasizing throughout this. This is very, very unique to Buddhism. Almost all other religions, they have gods that are the main figurehead for that particular way of life. But Buddhism is exceptional in that the main figurehead, the main person is, the, is a human being. 
there are so many of these little things that make Buddhism very powerful and realistic and real to life. Uh, and this is another one, that faith and wisdom go together. Uh, they're not separate. The more wisdom you have, the greater your sadda, the greater your confidence. Uh, the greater your confidence, the greater your wisdom. Uh, they go together. Uh, when you become full, have the full insight into the Buddhist teachings, uh, when you become a stream enter, that is also when your confidence and faith grow to the max. So it's a beautiful thing. So why translate it as faith if it means confidence? And one of the reasons why you translate it as faith is because faith has this idea of an emotional response to the teachings. Yeah, when you have faith, there is some kind of uplift. You feel good about it. Yeah, this is why people who are Christian may feel a very kind of high degree of bliss or happiness and that comes from that idea of faith the only problem with Christianity is that if it, even, if it isn't based on confidence you can also lose it very quickly again and that is kind of the downside there but in Buddhism too we want to have that emotional response and that emotional response is what you see so many places in the suttas uh, where you have the Dhamma Veda and the Atta Veda. Uh, Veda can be translated as inspiration. You're inspired by the Dhamma, the teachings. Uh, you're inspired by the Atta. The Atta is the goal, the purpose, the aim of those teachings. Uh, and you're uplifted by that because you see that there's something very interesting and important going on here. Uh, the ending of suffering, the highest happiness, and these kind of things. Uh, and then you feel inspired. And of course, inspiration is a beautiful word in English. Uh, inspiration has this idea of two meanings, in a sense, conjoined into this word of inspiration. On the one hand, you have the idea of understanding. You, you know, if you're inspired, it means you understand something. Yeah. Wow, that's really inspiring, you understand. But also, there is an emotional response in inspiration. You are lifted up. You have this feeling of gladness or joy. This is inspiration. You want to act. Yeah, Inspiration is this motivation to act on something. You're inspired to do something because you gain faith, you gain confidence and understanding in what needs to be done. And this is the same thing with faith in Buddhism. And that is why faith always leads to energy in Buddhism. You have the five spiritual faculties. In those five spiritual faculties, the first one is the sadda, uh, the, the, um, uh, the, the sadindriya, yeah, the, fa the faith faculty. And from the faith faculty comes the viri, viriindriya, uh, virya indriya, whatever, however it works. Uh, so from the faculty of faith arises the faculty of energy. You want to apply yourself because you are inspired, you are confident, you have these beautiful feelings inside that you're heading in the right direction. So faith is a, a very important in that sense, in that it is an emotional response. So you go forth out of faith. And what that means for us in the present day, we don't have access to the Buddha. We don't gain faith in the Buddha in quite the same way that they, then they could see the Buddha, they could be around the Buddha. So for us, it is important that we also establish that faith, but maybe in different ways. So you read the standard passage in the suttas about how the Buddha is described. Itipiso Bhagava Arahang, Samma, Sambuddho, Vidya, Chadana Sampanno, etc. And you read the same recollection of the Dhamma, the Dhamma Nusati, the Sangha Nusati, but especially the Buddha Nusati. And you start to gain a feeling for the Buddha. And as you do that, and you understand what he is about, you understand the Dhamma arises from that. 
very it, you can get inspiration from that uh, and from that comes the faith comes the whole motivation to practice this path in the right way uh. so sadda is an important emotion and this is why you find the anusatis uh, in buddhism uh, yeah the buddha nusati the dhamma nusati uh, sangha nusati sila nusati chaga nusati the uh, devata devata nusati uh, and you also have the, uh, I think, the Kalyanamitta Anusati. Or, uh, actually, there is such a thing. It's found in the um, Anguttara 11s. There is actually mentioned. Uh, yeah? So it's kind of a, an interesting one. Uh. But anyway, so this is how we kind of approach this idea. The idea of faith being fundamental to the idea of getting this path going. Yeah. So, yeah, so you go forth out of this reason. Uh, and because of that faith, you have the Buddha to lead the way. Yeah, the Buddha helps you out. So by reading the suttas, you are, we are actually allowing the Buddha to help us out simply by reading the suttas. The Buddha to give us encouragement. Yeah, you read the suttas, you feel encouraged by these things. And then it says, and this is kind of one of the interesting things right here. This is one of the things I pointed out before. Those people who go forth, they follow Master Gautamas. They follow the Buddha's example. Yeah, they look at the Buddha's practice. What has the Buddha done? Of course, they can see the conduct of the Buddha in right here and now. And the Buddha is going to be very... Very inspiring to see someone like the Buddha, someone who's fully enlightened, someone who's always at peace, always kind, always has these beautiful qualities. But also, sorry, also following the Buddha's example in the way he practiced before his awakening. And this is kind of, again, the point of all of these uh, uh, these. Um, suttas that are kind of autobiographies of the Buddha where he talks about himself and his own life. This is why they are. And this is, of course, another one of these suttas. We're going to look at the, uh, um, how the, what the Buddha did before his awakening here. So um, there you are. We are supposed to follow the example of the Buddha. Yeah? This is, here it is spelled out without any doubt at all. Uh, the Buddha is not different from us. Uh, he is human. The, kind, the practice that we do is the same. Uh, so the Buddha then says that is true, and then Janusoni uh, continues. But Master Gotama, remote lodgings in the wilderness and the forest are challenging here. It is hard to maintain seclusion and find joy in seclusion. The forest seems to rob the mind of a mendicant who is not immersed in samadhi here. So, yeah, this is um, kind of a common uh, experience in the world. Uh, it happens quite regularly. You get people who are not ready for the wilderness forest and they go a little bit nuts. <laughs> you know, they come out of the forest and have wide eyes and they kind of rave about being enlightened and you think, oh, okay, right. <laughs> And this is not, an, not all that uncommon because being by yourself for extended periods of time, it needs a very balanced mental state. If you're not very balanced in your mind, uh, it is going to have a tendency to actually make you go crazy. It happens very easily. Uh. And so when you look in the suttas, the Buddha always says that you should only be, go into solitude when your samadhi is strong enough. Uh. 
When you have samadhi, you have an independent source of happiness from within that gives rise to a very high stability of the mind. Those are the people who are ready for full seclusion. And this is a very important point of advice, and this is actually what comes up next here, that you have to know things, do things at the right time. So um, these are challenging, yeah, but they are challenging until you're ready, and then actually you really enjoy it. That's when the solitude actually becomes very powerful and interesting, because you don't really want to be around people anymore. Now, it is a very important point here, that your desire not to be around people has to be the right kind of reason. There are many people in the world who don't want to be around people because they can't stand people. <laughs> they just want to get away from people, right? People are a nuisance and they are, they are the kind of, what's it called, mis, mis, misanthropes. Yeah? Misanthropes is like someone who doesn't like people. And anthropos is the Greek word for person and mis is like a kind of hate yeah, or doesn't like people. And this is quite a common reason for people to go into solitude. You just cannot stand other people and it's not going to work because your mind is already in the wrong kind of perspective and looking at things in the wrong way. There's a bit of ill will there and, and not really having compassion for people. This is so fundamental. So first of all, make sure that you build up good qualities of metta and compassion for the world around you. Only then are you ready for solitude. And then... You, when you go into solitude, it's not because you hate people. Actually, you have compassion for people, but you find it disturbing. That's why you don't want to be around people. It is not com coming from defilement. It is coming from just a joy of seclusion, a joy of being on your own. And if you get this wrong, that is exactly why you go a little bit crazy in the forest. Yeah, This is why things really turn out to be... And I, this is quite common, even in monastic circles. You can see monks have not really been given the appropriate instructions, especially when you are a young monastic. Yeah, and then you go off and you kind of mess it all up because you don't know how to do this in the right way. One of the beautiful things about having compassion and metta in your life, yeah, metta and compassion, loving kindness and compassion, is that you never feel lonely. Yeah, there's a loneliness epidemic in the world, they say. Everyone is feeling lonely, especially young people. And uh, I think, you know, one of the reasons is because of uh, social media probably makes you feel lonely. You think that you're connected, but actually not connected at all. Uh, the right way to connect with people is through metta and compassion. Uh, you cannot feel lonely because you are connected in a deep sense to the whole world. Uh, yeah, when you have metta to, to everyone. Uh, that is the answer to solitude. Uh, and so we just need to develop more good qualities. Uh, Sometimes if you are in solitude and you have metta, you feel more connected then than when you are around people. Because when you are around people, then you know it has all the drawbacks of being around people. So anyway, so this is the idea of uh, they are challenging. You have to do it in the right way. And if you don't, then you have a problem. And the Buddha replies, so it is, that's so true, Brahma, everything you say is true. Before my awakening, when I was still unawakened but intent on awakening, I too thought. Remote lodgings in the wilderness and the forest are challenging. It's hard to maintain seclusion and hard to find joy in solitude. The forest seemed to rob the mind of a mendicant who isn't stilled in samadhi. Previously one has immersed, now it has still. That's because I have corrected the text partly, but not fully. I haven't fully 
Uh, I've just changed it to my preferred translation. Anyway, now you get a bit of both, which is kind of maybe even more interesting. You get both immersed and stilled uh, in the same text. Uh, you are so lucky getting all these various uh, views of the thing. <laughs> so again, the Buddha-to-be, right? Uh, the Buddha-to-be again shows kind of his humanity here. Uh, yeah, He too thinks of the danger of being in the forest when you're not ready for it. Uh, he can see that this is challenging. Uh, it is hard to find these things. And of course that harks back to this idea we had before that the Buddha also had attachments. Uh, and if you have attachments uh, and you have desires for the worldly things, well that is exactly the sort of thing that makes solitude difficult. Uh, because you will long for those things. You will want to go back to them. Uh, and that makes it, makes it harder. So first of all you need a very firm intention of renunciation, the nekama sankapa or nekama vitaka, and then once you have that, you really have renounced things in your heart, then of course uh, uh, it becomes possible to enjoy that solitude as a consequence. So the Buddha sees the same problem. And then, of course, the Buddha doesn't stop there. The Buddha-to-be then reflects on this. Then I thought... There are ascetics and Brahmins with unpurified conduct of body, speech and mind who frequent remote lodgings in the wilderness and the forest. Those ascetics and Brahmins summon unskillful fear and dread because of these defects in their conduct. But I don't frequent remote lodgings in the wilderness and the forest with unpurified conduct of body, speech and mind. My conduct is purified. I'm one of those noble ones uh, who frequent remote lodgings in the wilderness and the forest with purified conduct of body, speech and mind. Seeing this purity of conduct in myself, uh, I felt even more unruffled uh, about staying in the forest. So uh, this is the kind of typically what the Buddha-to-be does. Uh, if there is an issue, if there is a problem, always looking at the causes and conditions. Yeah, this is what you see throughout. Buddha is never satisfied with a kind of the status quo if it isn't if he hasn't yet found the highest happiness. He's looking for the cause and conditions. How does this work? I need that solitude. He obviously realized that solitude is important, right? Um, and yet, uh, w what are then the causes that is required to maintain that solitude and actually enjoy it? Uh, really enjoy solitude. Yeah? This, is kind of, this is kind of the holy grails uh, of uh, meditation practice, to enjoy solitude. Uh, that is when it really comes together. Yeah? And so he then starts to look at, well, what are the causes? Uh, and uh, straight away, he, the first thing here, unpurified conduct by body, speech, and mind. And this is almost enough. This kind of summarizes all the remaining reasons coming afterwards because it's a very broad kind of category. And when you have this unpurified, then you become fearful. He uses the strange translation. He summons unskillful fear and dread, which basically just means he becomes. Yeah, They become fearful and dread. That's really what it means. And um, so you become fearful and you become dreading uh, the forest because of your unpurified conduct of speech and mind. Uh, why is that the case? Uh, 
we're going to do like the Buddha. We're going to ask why <laughs> causes and conditions. And uh, it, it, in one way, it, it may be intuitive and obvious uh, why that is the case. Uh, but it is like I was saying the other day, yesterday, whenever it was, is that when you have unskillful conduct within there, uh, you tend to view the world as being unskilled and having bad conduct towards you. Uh, the way we look at the world is how we experience the world seeing us. Uh, so if you have a very pure conduct, uh, you will feel that the world around you also returns that favor and is pure and kind and benevolent towards you. Uh, but if you are angry with the world, you will see the world being angry with you. Huh? And uh, so this is, uh, so you kind of create an atmosphere. You go to the forest and you feel that the forest itself is benevolent and kind. Uh, yeah, there is no big problem there. Huh? In fact, uh, I would argue, and I think most people would see this, uh, the city is far less benevolent than the forest. Uh, yeah, the forest is not really dangerous at all. Yes, there are animals. And of course, if you provoke them, they might bite you. But snakes, for example, are not really dangerous. Uh, unless you step on them, of course, they get a bit upset if you step on them. But we also get upset if people step on us. So it's kind of the same, you know, fair, fair. But uh, if you, generally speaking, snakes realize that you are much bigger than them and they kind of go off. Uh, and this is true of almost all animals. Uh, they are much more fearful of us uh, than we are of them. Uh, and uh, Nature is usually very beautiful and very nice in this way. It is not, nothing really all that much to fear in nature. It's very rare for monks, for example, to die even though they live far away. It's rare for tigers to attack them or eat them. It doesn't happen very often. Occasionally you might get trampled by an elephant. <laughs> but it's only occasionally. And so if you are careful, even elephants will treat you well. But if you, of course, if you treat the elephant badly... Elephants are, very, are kind of interesting animals. Maybe Adonisara can probably tell you some stories about elephants from his Sri Lanka days. But they can—they have emotions. Yeah, they're quite close to humans. They're very intelligent beings, uh, and they get emotional. And if you treat them badly, they will feel that, uh, of course. Uh, and then they will kind of uh, very easily—they can then hit back at you if you do that. Uh. So, um, of course, we have to. If we are gentle and kind, uh, nature is gentle and kind back. Yeah, and so this is. Uh, it's like a psychological thing here, yeah? You feel safe uh, if you give safety to others. Uh. Um, so this is what this is uh, about to a large extent, yeah? So purified by body, speech, and mind. Uh, so this is your entire kind of uh, conduct. Uh, um, you may wonder why we start talking about more defilements further down. The reason is because... Uh, these are the coarser kind of defilements and the more refined defilements are coming further down. So that's why we talk about uh, uh, purif purity in mind here. It's more like the kind of initial purity here. Um, yeah, so this is how the Buddha reflects and then the Buddha-to-be reflects and then he kind of sees that uh, uh, he feels unruffled about staying in the forest. In other words, he feels at ease, yeah, unruffled, at ease, comfortable about staying in the forest. That's really what that uh, is getting at. So that is the very first of a large number of qualities that are required to really enjoy the forest. Then the Buddha continues. Then I thought there are ascetics and Brahmins who, with unpurified livelihood, who frequent remote lodgings in the wilderness and the forest. 
Those ascetics and Brahmins experience unskillful fear and dread because of those defects in their livelihood. But I don't frequent remote lodgings in the wilderness and the forest with unpurified livelihood. My livelihood is purified. I'm one of those noble ones who frequent remote lodgings in the wilderness and the forest with purified livelihood. Seeing this purity of livelihood in myself, I felt even more at ease, even more unruffled, even more comfortable about staying in the forest. So here, livelihood is considered one of the aspects of morality in Buddhism. So uh, part of this would be the livelihood of not oppressing other living beings. Yeah, the kind of five kinds of livelihood mentioned in the suttas uh, that you don't um, live off the suffering of living beings. Uh, you don't trade in meat and alcohol and poisons and weapons and that kind of stuff. Uh, but also here, the higher kind of livelihood for monastics uh, is that you, because the Buddha-to-be is already kind of a monastic at this point, uh, is that you don't trade, you don't, uh, you don't, give services to people so as to so for them to support you in re return right this is kind of one of the things that happens very often in uh, uh, buddhism even or monastic circles or uh, religions is that you i will kind of uh, prophesize your future and you will give me some food in return or some robes or whatever right and this is because uh, It has always been the case that monastics have cons been considered people who are powerful. They can see the future. They can give you lottery numbers, uh, right? Uh, and this is very common. It's kind of very interesting. In the, at Bodhinyana Monastery, the uh, people will come in, right? They come into the monastery and they kind of sit down and they listen to Ajahn Brahma. And what are they listening for? Uh, they're listening for numbers, uh. So they will ask Ajahn Brahm, how many monks in the monastery? And Ajahn Brahm says, 22. And they will write down the number 22 in the little diary, right? They don't want to hear about the Dhamma, they just want to hear numbers. And then add up all of these numbers, put them together until they have a nice lottery number, and then they will go and they will kind of check out. So they think that monks are always giving hints about lottery numbers. Actually, we're not giving hints at all. It's just the kind of the imagination of some of these lay people. <laughs> It's funny, isn't it? And uh, so this is a very, very common thing. And then sometimes they are really lucky. Yeah? It actually turns out to be a winning lottery number. And they gain this incredible confidence in the monks after that. They will come back to the monastery. and <laughs> it's, it's really it's amazing sometimes. And it's, it's just, uh, it, you know, there's no reality to it. But uh, still, people are kind of convinced about this. Anyway, so... Um, Uh, the idea for monastics is not to prophesize the future or to kind of, uh, you know, tell, read the tea leaves or read your palms and tell you what's going to happen to you. This is not the monastic undertaking at all. Nor should you act as a doctor, nor should you do all of these kind of things. You shouldn't really be involved in the world in that way. And this detracts from your practice. And this is why it is here not recommended. And in fact, you should avoid it. So then... When you don't do that, then again you are unruffled. One of the interesting things here, it is says that the Buddha-to-be calls himself a noble one, right? He's not yet, he hasn't yet understood the Dhamma, he hasn't yet become an Arahant or the Buddha, so in what sense is he a noble one? And I guess here he's noble one in a more slightly more ordinary sense, yeah? Noble in the sense that he practices in the good way, in the sense that he is living according to the path in the proper way. 
So noble and many of these words in Buddhism, they don't have always a very clearly defined meaning here. Words can have different meanings depending on context. And this is an important point to remember when we read the sutta, so we don't kind of impose artificial meanings on the text. It can very easily happen. I know people do this all the time. They think the suttas are like a mathematical equation, that the word always has the same meaning in all contexts. But actually, that is often not the case. So we have to be open to variations in meaning, and not to be too, uh, too kind of dogmatic about what the meaning is often. So anyway, the Buddha is then ready to enjoy Solitude again, go into the forest. It's interesting how uh, this idea of solitude is so important in Buddhism. I mentioned that the other day. You see this again and again in the suttas. Uh, and uh, it is one of those things is that even though the forest can be very beautiful and very attractive, you know, if you go into a beautiful forest, it's like going into a magic realm sometimes. The sun comes through, there's water there, beautiful and green. Uh, I have done a lot of walking myself and hiking when I was young in the mountains and the forest everywhere, and it can be very magical. Uh, like you go skiing, cross-country skiing in Norway in the winter, the snow, the trees are laden with snow, the sun, the sky is blue, the sun comes through, and it's just magical realm. And, and yet, it is not a problem to draw, uh, to enjoy that magic of the forest, uh, because the forest is peaceful. It is almost like our appreciation of the five-sense world. It has different layers to it. Uh, there is the coarse craving that comes from the kind of the coarser aspect of the five-sense world. Uh, and then there's the refined enjoyment of the five senses uh, that actually leads you beyond the five senses. Uh, and the forest is like that. Yeah, Even the arahants would enjoy the forest. Uh, and that is because there is a refined kind of enjoyment that leads you away from the coarser enjoyment. And then you take that a step further and you give up the five senses altogether. And this is an important thing to remember because it has consequences for how we live our ordinary lives. So for example, when you come back home after a long day's work, you are tired of the day, it doesn't mean that you should give up the senses straight away. You should gradually move away from those things. So as you come back home, don't sit down and meditate straight away because you're just going to fall asleep. The mind isn't ready for it. So take it stage by stage. Okay, I'll have a cup of tea. I'll listen to some calming music, Yeah, even maybe some chanting or even just some ordinary music. Yeah, You're already involved in that five-sense world. You can use it a little bit if you want to. I'm just going to read something or something that kind of leads you in the right direction. Then, when the mind is ready, you sit down and you do your meditation or whatever. So it is about using the five-sense world in the right way. It's a, gradu- it's a graduated path here. And then you are on the right track. Anyway, so let us carry on with these challenges. So now the uh, we're just going to have a. Uh, it is abbreviated a little bit because we can't read out the full paragraph every time. Uh, so then uh, the Buddha says, Then I thought there are ascetics, Brahmins, who are full of desire for the sensory world, the sensual pleasures, with acute lust. I am not full of desire. Uh, so. Um, here we are now coming into the five hindrances, uh, and I'm not sure if, uh, I, I, yeah, actually the, the, the Pali is quite strong here. Tibbaraga means something like acute desires, yeah, strong desires. Uh. So, um, sensual desires, uh, sensual pleasures, uh, 
desire for the five sense world. Uh, um, this is a problem if you're going to live in the forest because you're not going to get those desires satisfied. And of course, if you don't do that, then the mind is going to start playing with you. The mind is going to start, uh, uh, you know, turn inwards in a strange way because those desires, because you have an interest in that world, uh, but you don't get anything satisfied in that world, uh, it's going to be the mind is going to start to go funny. This is one of the reasons why it is so problematic to live in the forest, uh, unless you have overcome these things to a high degree here. So uh, the mind is not going to like this, uh, and it's going to start doing funny things with you. Uh, so it is important to overcome these things, of, uh, first of all. Uh, uh, this first hindrance uh, is by far the most important of the five hindrances. Uh, and... Uh, all the other hindrances are really a result of this first hindrance. Not entirely, because uh, there are two things that drive the hindrances uh, in Buddhism. And one of them is the interest in the five sense world. Uh, and the other aspect is the sense of self. Uh, both of these things drive the hindrances. But the far most important one is the five, the interest in the five sense world. Uh, so this world is very uh, uh, problematic. Uh, yeah, and it drives all of these defilements and everything really kind of emerges from that. So this, it is actually very useful to reflect on the problems of that world and overcome those because it leads to a general purification of the mind. All of these qualities start to come down as a consequence. So um, this is why again samadhi is so important because samadhi is exactly the place where the interest in the five sense world is given up, yeah, and so that's why samadhi is uh, is really the path here to overcome this particular problem. Uh, you can see how sharp the Buddha to be is, right? Uh, it's really hard to see these things. Uh, he picks these things out. He obviously has a very pure mind already. He has the ability to see that these are the problems in the way of enjoying solitude, enjoying the forest. Uh, Difficult to see. This, uh, it may seem, to us, it may not seem like very much. You kind of read and think, yeah, yeah, okay, next one, please. Uh, yeah. But actually, uh, this is very profound. Uh, and then, uh, the next one, uh, uh, there are Brahmins full of ill will, uh, with malicious intention, but I have a heart full of love. Uh, yeah, I have a heart full of metta, says the Buddha. And... Uh, Again, of course, the idea of having uh, malicious thoughts and malicious intentions, so that is going to be very problematic if you live in the forest. Uh, and uh, it's going to, you know, after a while, it, it doesn't, usually when we are around people, those malicious thoughts, they will kind of go out to other people, and we have an object for those malicious thoughts. Uh, but in the forest, there's no one, nowhere really to kind of, no one to be, have ill will towards. And sometimes it turns inward, it turns towards yourself. Uh, and it really can mess up your mind in a very, very bad way. Uh, and sometimes you end up suppressing these things, right? Uh, and this is really terrible for our psychological health. Uh, if you suppress your ill will and anger, uh, and it kind of becomes uh, something which is deep inside of you, but you don't really feel it. Uh, after a while, your mind starts to go really funny if you do these kind of things. Uh, and this is part of the problem also with essential desires. Uh, if you suppress them, uh, you hold them down in check. Uh, they are still there. So it stops you from attaining samadhi, stops you from getting anywhere on the path. Uh, but you can't see them, so you think they are gone. Uh, so you have a really serious problem as a consequence. Uh, 
So this idea of suppressing things is always a very bad idea here. Yes, we overcome them temporarily through meditation, but we don't hold them in check and pretend they don't exist. It's called repression, it's sometimes called. It leads to very bad psychological health, and it makes you unable to overcome them because you think they're not there anymore. I have seen people who have had very, you know, being starting to go funny, and they say, oh yeah, I have no defilements, yeah. But look at you, you're actually not balanced. There's something really wrong with how things are going. Yeah, but I have no defilements. And they kind of start to think they are enlightened, but actually they're going crazy instead. And this is what we want to avoid. So if you are, if you do get angry, don't think that you are a Buddhist who should never get angry. You should get angry sometimes. (laughs) Because it's natural to people sometimes to get angry, unless you are gone a long, long way on this path. It is okay. Don't think you have to be perfect. All you do is oppress yourself if you think you have to be perfect. Instead, learn from it. Watch what is happening. Understand the causes and the reasons why you get upset and angry. Then you can deal with it. One of the worst things we can do is to pretend that we are other than we actually are because you will never be able to deal with these things when you pretend. And when we have aversion towards our own anger and we don't want to see it, uh, then we are messing up the opportunity for understanding it properly. But if you instead stand back and say, oh, this is anger rising. Yeah, of course it's anger rising. This is what it is to be a human being. And you look at it with neutrality instead of getting uh, upset about your own anger. You just watch what is happening here. And when you watch with neutrality what is happening, that is where insight into your anger can arise. But as soon as you reject the anger, insight is kind of blocked from arising. The same thing with desire. You have desire arising in your mind, don't reject it. Just watch, of course, I'm a human being, the cause and condition, of course, desire arises in the mind. This is to be expected. Then when you just watch it neutrally, you see, okay, it's happening for these reasons. And that is where you get the understanding for why these things are happening. I'm getting angry because I'm seeing people in this way. Now, why am I seeing people in this way? Is there an alternative way? Of course there is an alternative way. This is how I should see them. And so you develop that alternative antidote because now we have understood why it is arising. The same thing with the desires. And so this is the right way because this is, gives you an opportunity to do something with these things. So never... never Pretend that you are. Never kind of reject your own humanity. It is to be expected that we have defilements. And it's okay to have these defilements. Yeah, It is not an issue. Forgive yourself. Be kind to yourself. Of course we have these things. Then you are on the right track. So you develop the metta instead. This is what the Buddha-to-be did. And then he was on the right track, ready for the forest again. The idea of metta is the one that makes living in solitude actually very delightful. So, there are some ascetics and Brahmins who are overcome with dullness and drowsiness. But I am free of dullness and drowsiness. So, um, this can happen very easily when you live in solitude in long periods of time, if you don't have that joy of meditation or things are not going well, people can have a lot of dullness and drowsiness. This you can, it's kind of very common. Yeah? I mean, most people have dullness and drowsiness even just on a short meditation retreat, let alone when you kind of go into the forest for long periods of time. And one of the important things to understand about dullness and drowsiness, initially, 
again, it comes from two different things. Uh, one of the main reasons why we have dullness and drowsiness is because of our interest in the sensory world. Uh, sensual desire tires the mind, uh, tires it out. Why? Because sensual desire, by definition, is uh, uh, restless, it is agitated, it is about going somewhere, it is about the movement of the mind, it is about acquiring something. Uh, it is never really in the present moment. You never get the chance to rest and to be at peace uh, as long as you have a strong inclination towards the sensory world. Uh, sensual pleasures are problematic for this particular reason. Uh, then why people are so people often talk about coming on retreat and they say oh the mind kind of oscillates it's either tired or restless there's no nowhere in between why is that the case well because both tiredness and restlessness are consequences of interest in the five sense world if your desire for the five sense world is there then the mind is restless trying to find a way to achieve those things moving towards them the agitation is there but after a while the mind gets tired you go into drowsiness and this is why you oscillate between those two things because both of these things are consequences of an interest in the five sense world so this is why the the, the reduction in the desire for that world is so important yeah because it actually overcomes all of these problems of the mind. Uh, all of these uh, uh, hindrances actually are often rooted in this problem. Uh, but uh, dullness and drowsiness is also rooted in even more profound defilements. It is also rooted in the sense of self. Uh, yeah, when the sense of self doesn't get its way, when the sense of self is not satisfied, it is not... Uh, it is not indulged in the way that we would like to be indulged, uh, then the sense of self. Sometimes it's just too much dukkha and it just kind of cuts out and it doesn't want to see the world. It blots things out uh, and you go into dullness and drowsiness. Uh. And the same thing for restlessness. Restlessness is most of the time is driven by interest in the five sense world, uh, but it can also on the deeper level be driven by the sense of self. Uh. Yeah, why? Well, because the sense of self wants to express itself. Uh. And one of the main ways that the sense of self expresses itself is through activity. You feel alive when you express yourself. You feel alive when you are creative, when you are imaginative, when you're doing things in the world. This is one of the main ways for the sense of self to be happy. Yeah, We are doers. And so if you are restless, especially the deeper levels of restlessness, it is very often about the sense of self expressing itself. There was a nice sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya 3s that talks about the various levels of overcoming defilements. Uh, this is the um, uh, Pangsudovaka Sutta, the um, Earth Remover Sutta. Uh, Anguttara 3 is 101 or something like that, depending a little bit on which edition of the suttas you read, because uh, the numbering is not always consistent, uh, just to make life even more difficult for us. Uh, um, and in that sutta, it talks about how you gradually remove the defilements. And one of the interesting points made in that sutta is that you need to remove the defilements in the right sequence. You have to start with the coarser defilements, then you go to the middling defilements. If you start with the middling ones, you have a problem. Always the coarser first, then the middling, then the refined defilements of the mind. And then come the super refined defilements. And the super refined defilements, according to that sutta, are thoughts about your reputation, uh, thoughts about your country, uh, and thoughts about your family or something. I can't remember. So, something like that. Uh, and these, of course, are things that have to do with your sense of self. Uh, yeah? The sense of self wanted to be supported. Uh, the sense of self wanted to express itself in certain ways. Uh, 
and that leads to defilements like restlessness and uh, drowsiness and these kind of things uh, because of that uh, uh, because of that underlying thing here but the most important thing to overcome is the five sense interest in the five sense world and that overcoming of the sense of self usually comes deeper later on on the path but it is another way why these defilements arise so you overcome dullness and drowsiness yeah the buddha to be is free of these things uh, and um, so then the next one is restlessness yeah there are ascetics and ramas who are restless with no peace of mind but my mind is peaceful uh, and again restlessness is driven by these two factors uh, yeah the interest in the five sense world and and deeper down the sense of self uh, there are ascetics and Brahmins who are doubting and uncertain. Uh, I have gone beyond doubt. Uh, so doubting in Buddhism has two different meanings. Uh, uh, there is the uh, kind of ordinary doubt, o- overcoming doubt that you do through samadhi practice. Uh, and then there's a full overcoming of doubt that comes when you become a stream enter. Uh, it's actually the same doubt. Uh, it's just that in one case it's temporary, the other one is permanent. Uh, and this doubt is the way it is defined in the suttas, uh, it is doubting about what are good and bad dhammas, what are good and bad qualities, what are good and bad teachings. Uh, yeah, so you have doubts about uh, what you should be doing. Let's say you are meditating, your mind is becoming quite peaceful, and then you don't know what to do next. Uh, how come my mind is peaceful, but I don't enter samadhi? Uh, and this, uh, this, this is a kind of doubt or uncertainty or ignorance, you can call it as well. Uh, you don't really understand what is the problem right now in your mind that stops you from going deeper. Uh, and I'm sure many of you have had that experience sometimes. Yeah? Your meditation is going well, you're feeling peaceful, there's no obvious defilements in the mind. Uh, how come I'm not blissing out in samadhi? Uh, what is stopping me here? Uh, and that fact that you don't know that is a kind of underlying doubt about the nature or underlying understanding, lack of understanding about the nature of wholesome and unwholesome qualities. And the reason why then you overcome doubt when you enter samadhi is because when you come to a state of samadhi, the mind is fully purified. Then you know exactly what wholesome and unwholesome qualities mean because you have abandoned all the unwholesome ones and what you are left with are the wholesome qualities. That's why doubt is gone when you enter a state of samadhi. So the way to overcome doubt then is to investigate, uh, is to ask yourself at the end of every meditation, uh, why was this successful? Uh, why was it not successful? Uh, what are these qualities in the mind that hinder progress in meditation and all of these kind of things? Uh, and then gradually you unravel this, you start to understand how things are happening, how meditation actually works. Uh, and so you overcome this uh, doubt and uncertainty here. Uh, and while you do that, you also overcome doubt about the suttas. Uh, yeah? You used to overcome the doubt about the Dhamma. This is part and parcel of the same thing, because the Dhamma is what drives this process of overcoming defilements. Uh, and so that is another side, pretty much of the same coin. Uh, yeah? Kusala akusala Dhamma can mean wholesome and unwholesome mental quality, but also wholesome and unwholesome teachings. Uh, and so you know the distinction between good teachings and bad teachings uh, that also comes with this territory here. So you overcome doubt in this way. The Buddha, this is how the Buddha-to-be obviously also overcame doubt because this is kind of the whole process here of investigating here. Yeah. 
Then there are some other defilements of the mind. There are ascetics and Brahmins who glorify themselves and put others down. I don't glorify myself and put others down. You can see why that is bad in solitude. Yeah, it's not going to be, you don't really have that opportunity to boost your ego in the same way when you are in solitude. You can't really just put down the monkeys. It doesn't really work in the same way. <laughs> it's kind of too obvious. So you, um, and this is kind of a tendency for human beings, yeah, to feel good about ourselves. We glorify ourselves and put others down. But actually, it doesn't really work, right? Uh, it gives you a temporary boost, but actually in the long run, uh, it makes you feel bad about yourself because that self-glorification and putting other people down, talking badly about other people, actually, it is a defilement in your own mind. What makes you feel bad about yourself? Uh, so there's no need to compare ourselves to others at all. Uh, the only thing that wants us to compare ourselves to others is our ego. Our ego delights in kind of being better and being superior and all these kind of things. But that is just a defilement. The beautiful idea of just not comparing yourself to others. Actually, it's a very beautiful state whereby we are just human beings working together. There's no need for comparison. In fact, comparison, as I mentioned before, is impossible anyway. What are you going to compare? You know, we're always changing, always becoming different. Uh, what, what is the comparison going to be based on? There's nothing to base it on in the first place. Uh, so you forget about this. You start to understand that this is actually deeply problematic. Uh, instead of doing this, appreciate the good qualities in both yourself and others. Uh, rejoice in those things. Have compassion both for yourself and others. Uh, because we're all in this mess together. Everyone is suffering more than they want to. Uh, and that is where you overcome this kind of need to, um, you know, uh, you know, for being superior or equal or inferior for that matter. And you don't do these things. And of course, in solitude, it's going to be particularly difficult because there is no one to put down. They're not, they're not there anymore, except maybe yourself. And maybe after a while, you start putting yourself down. Because the tendency we have in our mind, the way we treat others, is also the way we often end up treating ourselves. Yeah, you, if you are an angry kind of character, you also get angry with yourself. Then you get depressed. If you judge others, you're going to judge yourself. But if you have metta towards others, you're also going to have metta towards yourself. Because these are qualities of the mind that tend to be universal. And once we have it to some people, we tend to have it to everyone. We cannot really distinguish in this way. Sometimes people say that, oh, I have metta and kindness towards everyone except myself. But actually, no, it doesn't really work like that. Uh, if you have met real metta towards others, you will also have it towards yourself because uh, you are seeing people in general in a positive way. Uh, you cannot avoid including yourself in that outlook. Uh, so actually, you probably don't really have the real metta towards other people. Uh, there's probably more of a superficial thing that you have uh, and you really haven't understood fully what it means. Uh, the same thing with compassion. Yeah, if you have real compassion for others, you have it also for yourself. And that is why it is not always necessary to say, may I be well and happy. It's not wrong to say, may I be well and happy. Sometimes it can be very nice to have that feeling for yourself. Sometimes it feels really good. May I be well and happy, feel really nice. But actually it is sufficient to have a general sense of metta and compassion for everyone. Because that is, will also include yourself. <coughs> Okay, there are ascetics and Brahmins who are cowardly and craven. 
Craven is, uh, but I don't get startled. Craven is a bit like cowardly, apparently. I must admit I'm not really all that familiar with that word, but uh, apparently means something like cowardly. But I don't get startled. Uh, so if you're going to live in the forest by yourself far away, it is good to be, uh, not to be too easily startled. Uh, yeah, you have to be at ease with the world. You can't be a coward, it says here. <laughs> so being a coward is a bad idea. You've got to be a little bit brave. Yeah, you've got to dare to challenge yourself. And uh, this is, I think, one of those things about the spiritual path is that we always need to challenge ourselves. We cannot just be satisfied with the way things are. We always need to step a little bit outside of our comfort zone. If we always stay within our comfort zone, we're never going to get anywhere on anything here. And uh, this is one of those important things. Uh, so don't be afraid of challenging situations sometimes. That is often where you grow. Uh, that is where you start to see the world in new ways. Uh, sometimes do things that are unusual. Go stay at Nubri Monastery in a kuti by yourself, yeah, or whatever. I don't know exactly what accommodation they have there for lay people. But whatever it is, do things that are out of your comfort zone. Uh, test yourself a little bit. Try new things. Uh, yeah, and then uh, you, there's a chance you will grow. Whenever something is difficult in your life, people are difficult, whatever it is, uh, see it as an opportunity for growth because that is exactly what it is. Uh, and when you do that, then you are using your wisdom faculty instead of your complaining faculty here. Actually, that's not from the suttas. There's, there's no complaining faculties in the suttas, but that is really what you are doing here. And then you will grow because you are smart. You are using uh, intelligence and wisdom instead of using all of these other things. Uh, so um, that is uh, an important part of this. And the Buddha himself was very, the Buddha-to-be, was very brave, right? This is one of the things. He just goes off on himself, sets out in the forest trying to find a solution to the most profound problems of life. Uh, there is a certain bravery and, and uh, and uh, audacity to that, that is very inspiring and interesting here. Yeah. And we also need to be a little bit audacious sometimes, go out of our comfort zone, try these things that seem so difficult. And then you are not startled. You live at ease in the forest, you are unruffled, and things are, you can actually deal with that in the, uh, in the appropriate way here. So these are some of the defilements that you need to overcome to enable yourself to live in the forest. Now the next qualities that come up now, these are, actually there's one more negative quality. Maybe let's do that one quickly before. I, I didn't see that one. Okay, so there are certain examples who enjoy possessions, honor and popularity. Laba sakara siloka. Honor, people kind of, uh, you know, honoring you. Popularity means here that you are famous or popular. Siloka is the Pali word for that. Possessions is laba, just means gain, the more gain you have. And of course, if you enjoy these kind of things, solitude is not going to work, yeah? because this is not, doesn't happen in solitude. And this is, can be a big problem in the world, because this is what ordinary people look for. They look for honor and popularity, and also possessions, of course. And, uh, you know, many people, I think uh, a lot of it is about searching for these things. That's probably one reason why people become movie stars uh, or they go to Hollywood because they li like that adulation. Yeah, Everyone likes to be, we all have that inclination somewhere inside of us, uh, this feeling of being, unless you're an arahant, uh, that we want to be liked by others, we want to, you know, adulation from others. Uh, 
But uh, it is deeply problematic because you will never actually get it the way you think you will get it. Uh, and you will always just seek it more and more. And once you get it a little bit, uh, there will be a desire to control it and have it. Uh, the only way that this works out is actually not to get these things. Uh, and uh, this is uh, one of those beautiful things about sitting next to someone like Ajahn Brahm. I, I mentioned this before. Someone who is so well known in the world uh, and yet doesn't have any desire for these kind of things. Uh, I sometimes ask him, but oh, isn't there a danger? What, what about the danger of adulation and people honoring you and these kind of things and becoming famous? Uh, and Ajahn Brahm always replies, only stupid people get into those things. Uh, and he's right. It is stupid because it is a low kind of happiness. It is a happiness that can never be satisfied fully. Uh, and for that reason, uh, it, you don't get into that if you are wise and you have good samadhi already. Uh, but if you don't have that wisdom, if you haven't got the strength of samadhi, then you will fall for these things, like Devadatta fell for it. Uh, Devadatta, probably a very beautiful person in the beginning. He had good samadhi and all these kind of things uh, because he didn't have the wisdom. Uh, he fell for the adulation coming from the king. Yeah, if the king kind of, uh, you know, is impressed with you, I can imagine that's kind, kind of powerful. Uh. So it can be dangerous. Uh, and it's something you have to be on the outlook for. Uh, and it is the case that sometimes monastics will fall for these things and the same thing as Devadatta. And when you do fall for those things, then there is a problem. Then there is problems for abuse, problems with all kind of dodgy things happening between teachers and disciple as a consequence. So be always on the outlook. Be always careful with how you lead your spiritual life. Always take the Sangha as a refuge. Not so much individuals, but the Sangha. Because then you have that independence and liberty to shift your adherence, if you like, or shift your, uh, who you take as your teacher when you see dodgy things happening here. Anyway, so these are the bad qualities. And now next come the good qualities that we should develop to be able to um, enjoy solitude. And as, as always, these things are kind of balanced out in the suttas. Uh, and that is what we're going to come back to and look at this afternoon uh, uh, and see the other side of the coin, so to speak. Yeah. So that is all for this morning. Please keep on enjoying yourself. Have a nice lunch and we'll see you back again at 2 o'clock.